morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrea, and it's my privilege to kick off our new sermon series, Rhythms of Jesus, today. Um, So I want to give some context around that to start with as well. But let's pray to start with, because I need help. (laughs) Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and guide us as we share these moments now. Would you open our spiritual eyes? Would you help us to see the things that we can't yet see? And would you help us to hear what you're speaking to us? We're so grateful that you are such a personal God so that we do pray that you would come with your personal touch today for what each one of us needs. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's wise and important for every generation to ask ourselves some hard questions. That goes for the church as well, such as, is there anything that we've lost sight of as the church? And I wonder if our question for this next season is, have we lost sight of the fact that the way of Jesus is just that? It's a way of life. Not just a set of ideas, not a list of to-dos and to-don'ts, but it's actually a way of life based on that of Jesus himself. And we know, because we've been hearing it all year, that everywhere Jesus went, he was offering an invitation. Usually it sounded something like, come, follow me. Or we can also hear it as, come and be my apprentice. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus was a rabbi which in Hebrew means teacher, and therefore it would have been understood in that culture that he had apprentices. In Hebrew, that word is Talmudin, which is usually translated disciples, which suddenly becomes familiar to us. So to be one of Jesus' Talmudin or disciples is to apprentice under Jesus. Apprenticeship's a word that we understand today. Did anyone do an apprenticeship? Yeah, hairdressing apprenticeship, what did you do? electrical apprenticeship. So in any kind of apprenticeship, what happens? It involves being with your teacher, becoming like your teacher, and doing what your teacher does. So to be an apprentice of Jesus means to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did, yes? Jesus invited his disciples to make dramatic changes in their lives, and it was really clear that Jesus intended for his disciples and his later followers, like us, to actually do what he said and he taught. In Luke 6.40, we're reminded that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like his teacher. And in John 14.23, those who love me will keep my word. It's very simple, really. We're called to live the way Jesus lives. And I don't mean that we need to go and buy a robe and sandals and grow a beard, because I really can't do that. But I mean that we need to take his life and his teachings as our template, to ask ourselves, how would Jesus live if he were me? And how do I arrange my life around the practices of Jesus so that I will become an authentic follower? Now, Jesus lived his life in rhythms. There were habits and practices that he was regularly engaged in. He set an example of a new way to carry life. And then he turned around and said, if you're tired of the way you've been doing it and you need rest for your souls, then come and copy the details of my life. He was the Messiah, yes, to be worshipped and obeyed. 
but he was also a master teacher. He taught with a really unique authority and a way that was insightful and thought-provoking and really very brilliant. He was an astute observer of the human condition and his teachings corresponded directly to the way that life actually works. And that hasn't changed. And he offered a promise that true life change is possible if we put his teachings into practice. Matthew 7.25 tells us that we will be like a wise person who built a house on the rock, a firm foundation against any storm. So if you maintain the rhythms of your life that you have now, you'll continue to see the same results. It makes sense. To experience change, you must be willing to arrange your life for whatever your heart most wants. I look at people running around Lake Wendery and I say, I wish I was them. And I stop there. I don't arrange my life to make that happen. The desire for a way of life that creates space for God's transforming work is no different. Following Jesus has to make it onto your schedule and his habits and practices into your life or it will simply never happen. And authentic apprenticeship to Jesus will remain just an idea and not a reality in your life. So let's step into Jesus' classroom and learn from him with the objective of learning to be like him. Over the next four weeks, we're going to um, explore some of the rhythms of Jesus. He didn't practice any of them in a legalistic way. He just did them and said, follow me. What I constantly hear around me, and I have the great privilege in my role here of having a lot of conversations with people, and what I hear and see through tears and stress is that many of us, even after a slowed um, a forced to slow down last year, are still overscheduled and hurried and preoccupied and distracted and fatigued. And we cram as much as possible onto our to-do lists and we end our days exhausted. Sound familiar to anyone? Add to this the storms of life that blow into our lives unexpectedly and we wonder why so many of us are disorientated. We're also living in this wonderful age called the digital age. It officially started in 2007. That was the year the iPhone and Twitter were released and Facebook became something wider than just a university campus thing. For our young people, this is all they've ever known. They don't know a time when infinity wasn't in their back pocket. They don't know about that thing called boredom. You know, that thing that those of us born last century know about. They've always got a phone in their hands. And the reality is, not just the young people, but most of us just can't even imagine living without something that didn't even exist only 15 years ago. Of course, there are great things about the digital age, but let's also be willing to talk about the cons. There are literally thousands of apps and devices that are designed to distract you 24-7. They are designed for both distraction and addiction because that's where the money is. So your attention has actually become a commodity. Now, my concern is that this new normal of hurried life and digital distraction is robbing us of the ability to be present, present to other people, present to ourselves, present to our own souls, and more than anything, present to God. And that scares me. Is it possible that we are just too busy 
or too distracted to live emotionally healthy and spiritual rich and vibrant lives. John Ortberg says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it's that we'll become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we'll settle for a mediocre version of it. And Andrew Sullivan, this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And the threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shape-shift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. And at this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget that we have any. I think we have to ask ourselves the question. Is one of the greatest dangers to our apprenticeship to Jesus an over-busy and a distracted life? I wonder if any part of this sounds familiar to you. Life starts wearing you down. You get tired. You start to feel distant from God. You rarely experience his presence throughout the day. Love, joy and peace does not describe your felt reality. You end up living off somebody else's spirituality via a podcast or a book or a devo that you read as you run out the door. You feel distant from yourself. You lose sight of your identity and calling. Your energy is on loan from the stimulant of your choice. Even when you catch up on sleep, you still feel a deeper kind of tired. Instead of doing what's life-giving to your soul, you turn to the cheap fix that distracts you from your reality. Another block of chocolate, another glass of wine, for me, another packet of chili chips, binge-watching TV, Netflix, online shopping, social media, porn, whatever your drug of choice is. And then you become easy prey for the tempter. And that just furthers your sense of distance from God. You become emotionally unhealthy. You start living from the surface of your life instead of the core. You're reactionary. The smallest thing's in a, a trigger and it doesn't take very much. Recognize yourself in any of that. The noise of our modern world can make us deaf to the voice of God, drowning out the input that we most need. And if we lose our um, capacity to pay attention to God, then who knows who will become. Maybe Ronald Rollheiser was right when he warned that we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. So, is there a practice of Jesus that could help us with this? Something that would set us up to thrive right in the midst of our society? Yes, the answer is definitely yes, there are many actually, and today we're going to have a look at the practice of silence and solitude. So let's start by having a look at the life of Jesus. At the end of Matthew 3, we read the story of Jesus' baptism. This was the launch pad from which Jesus was sent into the world. But in the very next line in chapter 4, we see that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. The first thing Jesus did after his baptism was go to the wilderness. And desert here doesn't necessarily mean sand and heat and camels, like we might imagine it. The Greek word used is actually a ramos, and it has a number of meanings. It can be translated deserted place, solitary place, lonely place, quiet place, or wilderness. There are lots of stories throughout the Gospels about Jesus' relationship to the ramos. This is the first one, so we'll start there. It's kind of a weird one. Why would the Spirit send Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? 
But when we get the fuller picture of what happened in that space, we see that the desert wasn't a place of weakness, but actually a place of strength. And Jesus came out of that extended time with clarity of his um, identity and his calling. He was grounded. He was in touch with God. He knew what to say yes to. And he had the capacity to take on the devil and walk away unscathed. Over and over again, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus coming back to the Eremos, the quiet place. Mark 1, another example. If you follow that chapter through, you'll see it was a busy day. We think our days are busy. Jesus and his newly chosen first disciples traveled to Capernaum. He then went and taught in the synagogue, astonished them with his teaching, healed a demonized man while he was there. He then went and visited Simon and Andrew's house, healed Simon's mother-in-law while he was there. And then spent the evening with the whole city gathered at the door, is what the text says. He cured many who had been brought there who were sick and cast out many demons. He must have been well beyond exhausted by the end of the day, right? When he put his head on his pillow, ready for a slip in the next day. But in the following verse, in verse 35, sorry, we read that while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a solitary place. And there he prayed. In Matthew 14, we read that he withdrew by a boat to a solitary place. Matthew 15, Mark 6, Luke 6, we see him up on a mountain, which is why we left Elisa's prop from last week. Sometimes he was up on a mountain for the whole night. In Mark 6, 31, we read that he extended this invitation to others. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Luke 5, 16 sums it up beautifully. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. My point is that the quiet place was a regular part of Jesus' life rhythm. He regularly withdrew to gather himself to God. It was a common habit and it was priority for him. So over the years, this practice has become known as silence and solitude. And I think in 2021, somebody needs to tell us that there are such things. And it's okay and good to enter them. If you would like to um, press into this further, here's a couple of recommended reads for you. Invitation to Silence and Solitude, um, or Solitude and Silence, it actually says, by Ruth Haley Barden, and The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer, both brilliant books to read. And for clarification, when I'm talking about silence and solitude, I don't mean loneliness or isolation. The two are actually worlds apart. So, extroverts. How many extroverts do we have in the room? Stay with me. (laughs) Those of you having horrible flashbacks to lockdown last year, stay with me. In his book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster wrote, loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. So, in solitude, we're anything but alone. Silence is the absence of sound. There's two dimensions to it, external and internal. External silence, pretty self-explanatory. No noise or as little noise as possible. It's easy to quiet if you choose to. You take out the headphones or put them in if you've got noise-cancelling ones and you just want to hear nothing. I actually bought AirPods to do that. (laughs) Or turn off the radio. Turn off the music, turn off the TV, whatever it is. But then there is the internal noise, and that is a whole different beast. The mental clutter, 
the mind that just won't slow down, the what-ifs that we continue to play over and over in our heads. There's no easy off switch to that one. Silence is when we quiet both of those. Solitude is when you're alone with God and with your own soul. And these two combined offer so many beautiful invitations to us, an invitation to give God your undivided attention, an opportunity to just turn up. You don't have to strive. You just turn up and you let God do the rest. No matter what state we're in, we can come in that. It's an invitation to get God's perspective so we can get out of our own and an invitation to intimacy and to spiritual transformation in the deepest places of our being. They're good things. They're gifts from a loving God. But silence and solitude are so hard to do. There's very little in our culture that supports us to enter what looks like unproductive time. And when you get there, you have to battle with the whispers that will say to you, you're not getting anything done here. This is pointless. They're hard because they call us away from our human relationships to give God our undivided attention. They're super hard because it's in that space that we become aware of our inner dynamics that we've been trying to avoid by keeping noisy and busy. As Dallas Willard puts it, silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does, throwing us upon the stark realities of our life. Have you ever wondered where that urge comes from? As soon as you hop in the car, you need to turn on the radio or you need to listen to podcasts whenever you're walking or running instead of just letting it be what it is or to always have music on in the background, TV on in the background or to reach for your phone the moment you wake up and every spare moment you have during the day. Is it just habit or could it be something else? Could it be that you are actually using the external noise to drown out the internal noise? In silence and solitude, what happens is that we slow down long enough to feel all the emotions that we've been running away from. Sounds glorious, doesn't it? Our worry, our depression, our desire for God or our lack of desire for God. Our anger, our bitterness, our sense of God's presence, our motivations, our addictions, our questions, our doubts, the lies that we believe. All those things that lie under the surface of our lives. Most people don't want to go there because it's messy. And silence and solitude are hard because they draw us in to spiritual battle. Because there's the great potential for each of us in that quiet space to know that he is God. Psalm 46.10 tells us to be still and the knowing will come. The devil doesn't like that. So, are you feeling inspired right now to try this? You're probably thinking, I am out. And seriously, they should have got somebody else to preach this. But, and I need you to hear this. If we're actually able to learn to do this practice and not give up, we'll discover that many of the things that need to be known and figured out in life are actually going to be heard at the listening level, that place where God's spirit witnesses with our spirit. And that flies in the face of everything that society will tell you about how you come to know. Let me share a couple of personal examples with you from some extended time away. I figured out it takes three days for my head to stop chattering, to actually shut down that internal noise. So I try to go away for at least three nights um, once a year. I go down to the beach. I know everyone can't do this. I'm really blessed to have a family that releases me to do this. 
and I'm at the phase of life where I can. The first time I did this was two years ago. And at that time, I was in a space where I didn't know who I was. And I had that confused with what I was meant to be doing. I didn't know my strengths. I didn't know my vocation or call. I couldn't embrace myself because I didn't know who I was. I was wasting so much of my energy battling the truth of who I was. And that was paralyzing me. I was on staff here at Yorkie, but I didn't really believe that there was something that York Street needed that I could bring. I just didn't know anything, it seemed. And I went away with some pretty simple desires. I wrote them down. I spoke them out. They were pretty much, Holy Spirit, I desire you. Have your way. Help me get out of the way. Would you join the dots of my formation journey and would the aha moments drop? Please open my eyes and my heart to see what I need to see. And yes, I did actually say and write down, aha moments, super spiritual, right? (laughs) But honestly, I could not have dreamed of the profound breakthrough I experienced that week. Came away understanding for the first time in 46 years who I was and also why I'd been confused for such a long time. And that opened up a whole new world of possibilities and growth for me. And at the end of that time, the best I can, best way really I can describe how I felt was light and free and kind of giggly. And I was walking along the beach, kind of skipping along the beach and smiling and giggling and jumping over the bits of sparkly foam. And I truly, honestly did one of those little girl twirls, you know, the things we used to do girls when we were young, before we got all boring and adulty. I did check if anyone was watching before I did it. The second time I went away was between lockdowns last year. I was exhausted. The weight of being in church leadership in a pandemic and working crazy hours and studying and living on top of my family 24-7 in our tiny house. Two teenagers, beautiful teenagers. (laughs) And it had taken its toll. I was really done. I seriously had nothing left to give, and honestly, I didn't even want to give anything anymore. I yearned for silence, just wanted some space, and I yearned to be able to breathe again. So I had a couple of delightful first days. It was wonderful. But then, on the third day, I was caught totally off guard, and my emotions caught up with me. And boy, that was really ugly, Not just the ones from the previous few months, but the ones from several decades, the stuff I'd been pressing down, trying to ignore. And what actually surfaced was hurt and loads of disappointment and sadness and frustration and hopelessness and anger. I was so angry and I was due to come home the next day and I knew I couldn't. All that undealt with stuff would have just leaked or probably exploded over my poor family. I texted Darren. He was gracious enough to just say, do whatever you need to do, which for me was to stay an extra night. And I think he probably thought it was great to not have me home in that state. Or I wonder, Darren, was it just an opportunity for another hamburger with a lot while I wasn't home cooking healthy stuff? (laughs) So I set about finding myself somewhere to stay the extra night and found a little house with a fire. And that extra night, I sat in front of that fire with my messy and ugly emotions and asked God what to do with it. I was broken. 
and I felt drawn to sit down and read Mark from start to finish, so that's what I did. And I came to Mark chapter 5, verses 41, where Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, who they thought was dead. The text says he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. And in that moment, I saw an image of Jesus reaching out his hand to me. Had a smile on his face. And he said to me, come on, little girl, get up. Let's go and do this together. It was an opportunity to accept an invitation, and I did. And my internal world shifted, and I went to bed with the lightness of spirit and actually looked forward to going home the next day. Often silence and solitude is not a place where our circumstances change. We still have to go back to where we came from, and the circumstances look exactly the same, but it's the place where we are changed. And it's because of what's being given to us in God's presence that what felt hopeless or endless or burdensome is something that we now see God's work and presence in. Silence and solitude is a place of encounter, and that means a place of change and transformation. So here's an alternative to the picture I painted at the start of this. We find our quiet places and we come away. We take our time, we slow down, we breathe, we come back to the present. And we start to feel, we face the good, the bad and the ugly in our own hearts. But all of this is exposed in the safe place of the Father's love. And then we sense his voice, a truer and a more reliable voice, cut through the noise of all the others that we've been listening to. We hear God speak his love over us. He speaks our identities and callings into being, and we get his perspective on life. We release our need to control. We create space for God's activity instead of our own. And we come to a place of peace about ourselves, about our lives, and to a place of freedom. Our failures lose their power over us, as do our successes. We get out from under the tyranny of other people's opinions, and boy, that is freeing. And we're free to be just us, nothing more than children with our Father. And then we re-enter life, and what we find is we're actually able to give to other people because we become safer for other-seeking souls, and we can extend love and compassion to them because we've experienced ourselves. So how do we do it if we want to give it a go? I know that this practice is so radical and so countercultural that a lot of people won't even give it a shot. And I know some of you will be sitting there thinking, this sounds great for you. Me? I'm too busy. I have a baby. I have like a million kids. I'm an extrovert. I'm working two jobs. I don't really think I need this. I can connect to God in other ways that are easier. I don't know how to pray. I really don't need any more time alone. I need this noise around me to focus. I'm not really good at this kind of stuff. I can't do this. And I want to disagree with you. In love, you can do this. Just start small. That's just five minutes a day, then start there. It's not legalistic, so don't make it that. You don't need to impress other people. You certainly don't need to impress God. Don't even try that. You don't need to tick a box. You be you. Know your personality. If you're an introvert, you will need loads of time alone. If you're an extrovert, not so much, but you still need time alone. So how do you do it? 
Establish a time and a place to give God your undivided attention. Decide ahead of time how much time you'll spend in silence, particularly if it's new to you or it just seems really scary. Set a modest goal, set a timer. Pray a simple prayer that just expresses your openness to God. All you might be able to muster is, here I am, Lord. That's something that you can come back to if you get distracted. Give yourself time and permission to notice what's true about you in that space. If you're tired, then say, God, this tiredness is what's true about me. What are we going to do about this? And allow yourself to become aware of God's response. And then when you emerge from your silence, resist the urge to judge your experience. We're so good at just judging everything. Like, I didn't get anything out of that. God didn't speak to me. I must be awful at this. Remember, the purpose is just to be with him. Have loads of patience. There are some questions you will not be ready to hear the answers to yet. You just have to be patient with him and trust his kindness and his goodness towards you. And extend yourself a load of grace. Learning anything new takes time. It feels awkward at first. Now, I know some of you know me quite well, and some of you will still be sitting there thinking that I'm a really biased source because you know I'm an introvert and you know that I love this. But please don't write me off. I know this is hard, but the quiet places where Jesus and countless numbers of his apprentices through the years have found life with God. And throughout church history, most of the master teachers have agreed that silence and solitude are of the utmost importance. Henry Nouwen said it really bluntly. There was nothing to soften the blow here. Without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. You're welcome to disagree, of course, but there's a whole lot of evidence there spanning more than 2,000 years. And if you're wondering, do I have an agenda by bringing this today? Absolutely, I do. I want this for you. I want you to slow down your life. I want you to order your life around the practices of Jesus. I want you to be great apprentices to become more like him. I want to see you flourish. I want to see you free, that you would know who you are in Jesus. Don't wait 46 years like I did. That the creator would get to name you and the enemy wouldn't get to do it anymore because some of you have been walking in that for far too long. And I want you to experience the new reality of freedom and joy and healing and peace that awaits for you on the other side of your, your pain and your fear and your questions. Because I know that there's nothing that feels like the love of God. And there's nothing that transforms like the presence of God. So yes, I want this for you. The beauty of an invitation is that we really do have a choice. We can say yes or no. God extends the invitation but then honours our freedom. All of this is optional, but it's a great tool in your apprenticeship to Jesus. So if you long for more of God than you have right now, for more truth than you have right now, or more transformation than you have right now, then give it a go. Pay attention to the stirrings of your soul. Don't run from them. Don't distract yourself from them. But let them lead you into silence and solitude where the presence of God makes itself known beyond words. 
If the invitation from Jesus to follow him sounds like a burden or an obligation or boring or whatever, then you haven't heard him correctly. The offer he gives actually promises the freedom that we long for. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. We're being invited to discover a way of life, a rhythm of life that is more fulfilling and more free than anything that we could imagine or make for ourselves. And I hope you'll say yes to that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time today to be still. God, we recognise that there is just so much that tries to keep us hurried and distracted and take our eyes off you. God, would you help us to be aware of that? And would you help us to choose to live in a different way? We thank you that your invitation gives us a radical different way to deal with life. And God, for my brothers and sisters in Christ sitting here right now, I pray that their experience of you would be one of fulfillment and joy and that they would know your presence each day. And Holy Spirit, whatever you've been stirring today, I pray that that wouldn't be lost as they walk out the doors and re-enter their lives again, but you would keep prompting them to come back to the place, the quiet place, to get the perspective of their father. God, would you change us through this practice? In Jesus' name, amen.